Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Today, we're speaking with my friend Boris Tizak, a PhD student studying sea turtles, which feels rather appropriate as we're heading into the height of sea turtle nesting season here in South Florida. We cover how you can be a marine biologist without even realizing it, and how sea turtles are some hot chicks and cool dudes. We also chat about how Boris's award-winning research led to a true eureka moment that fundamentally changes the game for sea turtle studies. Boris explains this better than I can, so I'll let him do it. Here's Boris. Boris, welcome to the podcast. Let's start general. What are your hobbies? Just because you're a marine biologist doesn't mean all of your hobbies revolve around the ocean, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. I might suffer from having maybe too many hobbies. So we'll start with the non-marine related ones. Um, I really love playing soccer and tennis. Um, I actually just recently got into racquetball and I'm having a lot of fun with that. When I was younger, I used to draw a lot, but I feel like recently that's kind of been replaced by cooking. So now I'm really into cooking and I watch probably too many cooking shows. Um, that's fun. That's a great hobby because everybody enjoys a good cook. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's awesome. So now me, both, both me and my girlfriend spend a lot of time cooking together. So that's a lot of fun. <laughs> and then, of course, marine related tons, right? So I, I really love free diving and spearfishing. I got into scuba diving a few years ago, so I really love that. And then just hanging around on the beach. I love beach volleyball as well. So all of that. Fishing, I grew up fishing with my parents. So all of that good stuff. When did you get dive certified? Um, actually, pretty late. I was already kind of in my third year of my PhD. So about maybe two or three years ago, one of my good friends and, and neighbor who I actually met here at school is a um, dive instructor, so she kind of hooked it up with that, and then, of course, I, I got hooked. I, I sort of took a long time to get dive certified because I knew that I was going to love it so much that I wasn't going to want to do anything else, <laughs> uh, and that was kind of true for for some time. <laughs> it was awesome, yeah. Yeah, diving is very addictive, for sure. So you just have you have your open water. I have my open water and my advanced because I really wanted to go on some shark dives, and so I needed to have my advanced for that. So I got that. Even though at my school they offer a kind of a dive, a scientific diving course, I haven't taken that yet. I haven't had the time to do that, but eventually something I would like to get into. It's it's worthwhile. I did it while I was at FAU, and you learn a lot. There was like navigation involved, and it wasn't all just like quadrants and scientific stuff. It was, it was more intensive diving work, which was right. fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I really, really wanted to get into that. Cool. So what made you decide to become a marine biologist? Was there like a defining moment? That's a funny question. I don't think so. So I was not one of those kids that I guess always knew that they wanted to be a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you when you asked me to be in this podcast, I was like, huh, I guess I am a marine biologist. So I, don't, <laughs> I don't really thought of myself as one, but I guess I am, right? Um, Uh, but no it's just kind of it sort of happened so I grew up like I said fishing with my dad and I always really enjoyed nature when I was a in high school I did a um, summer camp at SeaWorld for three years in a row and I really really enjoyed that Um, so I kind of always knew I loved the ocean but I didn't think of it so much as a career and then 
as you know, as kind of time went by and I got involved into some projects here at the university, it just kind of slowly turned out to be that way. So you kind of knew, I mean, you just want to do science. You kind of knew you always wanted to do science. And then as you got into school, you kind of fell more into the marine world or you just, it's totally how. Yeah, no, I always taught and gravitated towards science. That was my favorite subject in school. I okay. took the idea of going to medical school. Um, and so I took all the, like the preliminary biology classes and stuff at school. And then in my undergrad, the last semester, um, at FAU, they have a program called uh, semester by the sea where we go at Harbor branch. Uh, did you do that? I did. Yeah. So that was for me, I think probably the biggest turning point. I, you spend a whole semester at Harbor branch learning about marine life and actually doing some hands-on research stuff. And that's what got me totally hooked into it. That is cool. So Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute is in Fort Pierce, and it's like a local, it's like your your backyard oceanographic institute that nobody <laughs> really knows about, except if you're in the scientific community, I feel like. Yeah. But um, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty yeah, awesome. it's wild that not that many people know about it, because it's so cool, right? And it's relatively large, and there's so many cool things going on there, but yeah. You're currently pursuing your PhD, or did you already wrap that up? No, I'm in the final stretch. So if you had asked me a month ago, I would tell you that I thought I was going to graduate this semester, but um, (laughs) it looks like it's going to be a little bit longer, but not too much longer. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's how it goes with PhDs. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been saying that I'm going to graduate in like a year for like three years now, but (laughs) 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 but this is really it. This is really it. So at the beginning of your college career, did you know you wanted to pursue a PhD? No, definitely. No, I don't think so. So I actually, um, once I I started this program as a master's student, um, and just because I, you know, I I graduated with my bachelor's in biology, I didn't really find an ideal job that I loved. um, And I knew I really liked research and wanted to stay. I actually really missed school after I left. Um, So I came back to pursue a master's just as that seemed like the right kind of stepping stone and, you know, something that could kind of help me guide and eventually find a job that I would like. Once I started with a master's, I sort of fell in love with my project and my question, and I quickly, after six months, transitioned into a PhD. So it's been about five, and I think I'm starting the sixth year now, or I'm towards the end of my fifth year. You kind of lose track of time, but it's been a while. So two questions with that. Well, what what did you do after you graduated with your bachelor's that kind of, like, made you decide not to go so, back to school? So I did something very different. So I moved to Pittsburgh, uh, where by the, there's no ocean. <laughs> so that was the first problem. Even though I really love the city, I, I really miss the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked for the University of Pittsburgh as, I guess, the technical, my job title was a promoter of health for the Hispanic community. So it was a kind of a pilot program where we tried to find mostly illegal immigrants from South America and Central America to try to get them involved in the community and help them with uh, finding sort of a primary care physician or finding hobbies or helping them with mental health, that sort of stuff, to see if that would kind of improve their quality of life. Okay. So very different, but I I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, but um, yeah, I decided that I, I wanted to go back to kind of the science and the research aspect of things. Yeah, that that's super different, but it's really interesting. It's more of like a social science than like a biology science, right? Absolutely. And, uh, and, and you know, it taught me to communicate with people. It, it, now I try to incorporate what I learned as much as I can now. And I'm, I'm really into outreach and trying to also reach to kind of the, the, 
you know, the groups that normally wouldn't get into science. So sort of try to keep that somehow with what I'm doing now. That's great. Yeah, I think that's one of the more important aspects of research is kind of getting getting your research out there, right? Like it doesn't doesn't behoove anybody for you to just sit there and keep it to yourself. So you came back to school, you're going to get your master's, and then you didn't end up actually getting your master's. You just immediately transitioned to a PhD. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, so so actually, I do have my master's now at FAU. They have a program called Masters Along the Way. So okay. after so I, after six months, I talked to my advisor, and we kind of went over our project and, and my project and what I wanted to do, and she sort of agreed that it was a PhD project. So okay. then we submitted some paperwork and basically asked for permission, and, and, and they agreed that I could switch to a PhD without you know too much extra work. And then after I defended, or not defended, after I proposed my, my thesis and had enough classes, you basically get an automatic master's, which is neat. <laughs> That's great. So, so it's one thesis still, correct? Yes, it's still one thesis, but you know for a, a PhD thesis, it's usually three or four chapters. So it's much it's much longer than a master's thesis, but yeah, it's still kind of all centered around one question. So what is your question? <laughs> so I am really really interested in sex determination in turtles. So how does it work? How does the environment affect it? How is it going to change? So we know that temperatures affect sea turtles' sex. Hotter sands mean girl. Cooler sands mean boys. Hot hot chicks, cool dudes. Exactly. Yeah. What does your research cover? So ever since I heard about that for the first time, I sort of totally became fascinated by it. The bulk of my thesis is to try to understand the molecular mechanisms behind how that works. So we know that temperature affects whether they become boys or girls, but we really have n- don't really know for sure how it works. So which genes get turned on and off? How does moisture or other environmental factors affect which genes get turned on and off? And yes, yeah, sort of kind of how that initial embryo can determine, can identify temperature and how does that direct whether it'll be one or the other? That's my big question. Now, uh, more specifically, now I'm working on a technique to identify sex in young turtles. So you probably know, but some people might not. And sea turtles, when they hatch, both males and females look exactly the same. There's no way that you can pick up a baby turtle and identify if they're boys or girls. Take about 25 years for them to become sexually mature. And And currently, there's only really two techniques that you can use to identify sex in young turtles. The first one is via histology, so that means kind of opening up the turtle, taking the gonad, which is the organ that will become the ovary or the testes, you have to take that out and then look at it under a microscope. And then looking at the differences, you could tell if it's a male or a female. But of course, that means you have to sacrifice the turtle, which is the last thing you want to do when you're working with an endangered species. You know, we don't want to do that. And then the other technique, which is what we do in our lab, is we raise the turtles. It's called laparoscopy. So that uh, we raise the turtles for about three months till they're a certain size. And then we put a little camera inside of the turtle to look at the reproductive sex organs. And then that way we can identify if they're boys or girls. But that also has a lot of shortcomings because you have to raise turtles in the lab. So it's time consuming. It's really expensive because you have to feed all those uh, hungry little turks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it requires the expertise of somebody that can actually do the surgery, right? So there's very few people in the world that can actually do that on young turtles. So right. that's what got me on this kind of mission to come up with an easier way to identify the sex in, in young turtles. Why is it so important to identify the sex in young turtles? Right. So because for these guys, it's a temperature that determines sex. We Our previous studies show that we have a lot and a lot of females hatching in our beaches here in South Florida because it's so hot right during the summer when they nest. Just to give you an idea, over the past 
three years, we've looked at well over a thousand turtles and we haven't found a single male come out of our natural nest here. In so, three years? Yeah, in the past three years, they've all been really hot years, so we haven't found a single male. Wow. Really, really kind of scary, right? Yeah, a little bit. So of course the fear is, are there going to be enough males to keep the population going? What happens if temperatures continue to increase? Are there going to be any males at all? Should we step in? That's fascinating and scary all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So instead of leparoscopies and or using dead turtles, what does your research allow to happen? And how did you discover this? Yeah, so we were looking to see if we could find something in the blood um, that could tell us if it's a boy or a girl. So basically a sex-specific molecule. Um, and the idea why we were looking for the blood is because really it's, it's quite easy to take a small blood sample from a turtle hatchling. It doesn't affect them much. You can release them the same day. And it's something that pretty much everybody could do in wherever they are, right? You don't need a lot of fancy equipment to do that. Right. I mean, what would you need? Just like a small needle and right, a, a small like a slide and that's and about it? Yeah, pretty much relatively easy access to a fridge or a freezer so you can store your samples. And then that's it. You could send it to a lab or to us right now to try to identify sex. So we have to go back through the literature to figure out, like, what do we know about sex determination in turtles? So we know that they both start with a bipotential gonad. What that means is that it's, it's an org, it's a, the gonad is the organ that will eventually become an ovary or a testis. And in, young, in an embryo, it can do... It's not determined, right? So there's something about temperature that tells that gonad that's going to go one way or the other. Now, we don't know the specific genes that kind of get turned on or off that determine that fate, but we do know some of those genes that need to be turned on later to make that gonad into a fully functioning ovary or a fully functioning testis. What I did is, so I went down the list of those genes. So if those genes get expressed, they turn, they make proteins, right? So okay. I went down the list of a bunch of those proteins that we know were either necessary for male or female to see if we could find them in the blood. And you say proteins because turtles don't have any chromosomes like humans, correct? Correct. So if you look genetically, they have basically you can think of them as having the same set of instructions, right? The mm -hmm. same instruction manual. What hap what differs is which pages of that instruction manual are read, or mm -hmm. in other words, which proteins are expressed. Okay. So it's a difference in protein expression that directs the sex of the turtle. So no X and Y chromosomes, it's the protein expression. And, that, and the temperature is what, what dictates which ones get expressed. Exactly, yeah. So then we went down the list of those proteins to see if any of them would be expressed in the blood. And after a lot of trial and error, we found one, and it was very exciting. I ran around and danced around the lab when I, when I figured that one out. So I mean, that's, that's pretty, it's an amazing discovery, actually, like, <laughs> like one specific protein and it determines and it's like it's definitive and that's a really awesome discovery for us yeah, so so far <laughs> we think it's definitive right so we've only tried it in one species of, of sea turtle we tried it in a freshwater turtle the red-eared slider which okay. a lot of people has, have as pets they have like kind of red markings by the eye okay. um then we tried it on the loggerhead sea turtles which are the most common species here um and the protein that we found it kind of makes sense as to why it's found only in one sex and not the other. It's called an uh, anti-mullerian hormone, or AMH for short. What it does is when both male and female turtles hatch, they hatch with a structure called a mullerian duct, which in the female becomes the oviduct, and they, they'll need that for reproduction, right, to lay eggs. But in the male, it regresses. So it's that AMH, or anti-mullerian hormone, that gives it a signal to go away. So that's why we're only finding it in, one, in males and not in females. That's super fascinating. So you think that, I mean, obviously you haven't done a lot of testing or any testing really for any other species, right? 
Correct. Yeah, that's kind of our next step. Okay, but current hypotheses stand that you might you you would find that same to be true in all species of turtles. At least for the for the majority of them, I, I'm really curious about leatherback turtles. So leatherbacks are a little bit different in the way that they do a lot of things. So I, I'm I'm curious about leatherbacks, but we think for green at least for green turtles, it should work. But we still have to test that. That's. Fascinating. So what does this enable the scientific community to be able to do? Yeah, so it's really exciting because, of course, we have a general idea of what the sex ratios are in our beaches right here and in, in where we study, which is Boca Raton, Florida, because we are able to do the surgery and verify the, the sex. But we really don't know what the sex ratios are in other beaches. And that's critical because, okay, if there's a lot of females being produced here, but if we go a little bit further north, you get a lot of males and we don't really have a problem. But we don't know that, right? We don't know what the sex ratios are pretty much anywhere. Uh, so this will hopefully kind of help other researchers and other labs try to answer that question. So how many males, how many females do we have a problem? And then, of course, if we identify that across different beaches, we're getting just a bunch of females, we could think about doing things like shading the nest or watering the nest to cool the temperatures down to eventually produce kind of, you know, enough males to keep the population going. We're not there yet. We have to first kind of set up a baseline and really figure out what's going on in nature, right? Right. So does shading and watering, cooling down the nest, does that, has that been tested? Like, does that work? Uh, yeah, more or less. So there's a, another PhD student in my lab who's looking into that sort of as a strategy for mitigating you know, climate change or increasing temperatures. Um, and the way that kind of she's going about it, it's, it's sort of funny. So there's a, a condo right on the beach that never uh, followed the rules, basically. So they have a they have a sprinkler that was never fixed, so it, so it waters the beach. Okay. <laughs> so she moved some nests on the, she, she, you know, didn't yell at the condo, and so she just moved the nest to that area of the beach that's getting watered every day. Okay. Um, and she put a temperature logger, so a device that, records temperature every 15 minutes during incubation okay. just to see how that temperature changed. Um, and what she found was that, in fact, the temperature does cool just by watering. Um, not enough in, in her year where she looked at it, the temperatures were so hot that she still got a bunch of females. Okay. But, but the hatching success increased. So what happens now is that it's so hot that not only are we producing a bunch of females, but um, a lot of turtles aren't hatching they're basically cooking in the nest because it's so hot um so yeah so, so the cooling of the of the nest via water kind of helped helped with that so they had a much higher hatching success so that's also really good and important so do we know if there's like a specific temperature range that one turtles will hatch in better or like with, with better reproductive success or two like what makes the the boys yeah sure so as far as Kind of the critical temperature where we think turtles will stop developing is 33 degrees Celsius. I don't know that in Fahrenheit, but I can look it up real quick. So that's about 91.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So anything above that, if it stays, if the nest stays above that temperature for a while, we'll see a significant decrease in hatching success. Okay. Yep. Uh, and then as far as the sex ratios or, or the sex goes, it's kind of tricky. So a lot... A while ago, there were a lot of studies to try to figure out exactly that. So what temperature produces which sex? Um, and the problem is that all of those studies were done in the lab under constant incubation conditions, right? Which is never really what we see in the field. Right. But based on those studies, 
we know that temperature is around 27 degrees Celsius, which is about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, should produce 100% males. And temperatures at 31 degrees Celsius, so above 87 degrees Fahrenheit, should produce 100% females. Okay. Yeah, and so in between, you get a mixed sex ratio, right? So in a nest can be pretty deep. You can have over 100 eggs in one nest. The idea is that the nest at the top can be a little bit warmer than the nest at the bottom. So you could have both males and females come out of one nest. That makes sense. So you are still in the lab quite a bit. When the public Is there still like an observatory up top? Yeah, sure. So so we hold our turtles at Gum, uh, the FAU Marine Lab, which is located at Gumbo Limbo Nature Center. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a really cool place. If you guys have been, check it out. It, upstairs, there's a visitor's gallery where the public can go in and kind of actually see, you know, the students and science happen in front of their eyes. And so we always encourage them to kind of ask questions if they see students downstairs and interact. And it's kind of a cool place. So, yeah, we're still there. And sort of part of my job is to be there three days a week to kind of talk to the public and tell them what we're doing and what we're finding and that sort of stuff. And I really enjoy that. That is awesome. So what is your most frequently asked question? Do you have like top three? Oh, let's see. Uh, Yes. So so if you go there, you'll see what we have. Well, I got some really weird questions too, but we'll Those are good too. I'll go with that one first, actually. The weirdest question. So we have green turtles in the lab. I don't know if you guys have ever seen them, but when they're young, the the backs are really dark. They're not green. They're more black. And so I had uh, one person ask me why we had penguins in the lab. They thought they were penguins. <laughs> that one's a weird one. But um, see the lab, you'll see that we have all our turtles in, in individual baskets. So definitely the most common question is why are they in baskets and does that not hurt them? You know, don't they feel trapped. And the reason why we have them in baskets is twofold. So first, sea turtles are not very social. So if you let them swim together in a tank, they'll bite each other and form pecking orders. So we don't want that. Um, and the other thing is uh, during their young stages of their lives, they don't do a whole lot of free swimming. What they would normally do is kind of find a nice patch of sargassum or floating seaweed and they hide in it. So the baskets are supposed to mimic the hiding feeling that they would get. In fact, a lot of the times if I take a turtle out of its basket, it freaks out and tries to go to a little corner and tuck itself in. That makes perfect sense then. The temperatures, do we know if they're the same for nests for males or females, the temperature gradients to determine which sex they're going to be? Do we know if they're the same for all species or is that just like loggerheads? No, that's a really good question. So yeah, they do vary a little bit from species to species. Not much. So the pattern of hot chick school dudes is the same for all species of sea turtles. Okay. There are some animals that are the other way around, like alligators, for example, which is crazy, right? There are even some That's species. really strange. You think rep- reptile kind of be yeah, the same. I think they would do the same thing, but they don't. It's, it's really weird. There's actually some species of, of turtles, freshwater turtles, where the two extremes produce one sex, but the kind of the middle produces another. So it's all sorts of weird things. Yeah. Yeah. Nature. Uh, yeah, nature. Nature's like, you want rules? No. <laughs> <laughs> nah, yeah. But yeah, so so the temperature, so the, the pattern is the same, but the exact temperature does change, not only from species to species, but also from population to population. So um, the 29 degrees Celsius producing 50-50 sex ratio that I told you about here in South Florida is not the same as in Brazil, for example, or Turkey. They all have, they all vary a little bit. Oh, Okay. Wow, that's really interesting. I wouldn't wouldn't have thought about that. That's why you know that's why it's so important to actually verify the sex of the of the individuals because if you use sort of that 
around like that number of 31 degrees Celsius, oh, then all all the turtles should be female when that's not necessarily true, right? They, they do. There's quite a bit of variance. And... Right. So instead of making assumptions, you'd make you'd verify, and then and your new method, your new protein that you found, would uh, help help everyone be able to do that. That's pretty cool. And do you have a favorite field story or stories to tell? It could be like your best or worst day, something funny that happened, a breakthrough. I feel like the day you found your protein has got to be a pretty good one. That was definitely the, yeah, that was the, probably the highlight. <laughs> but not in the field, right? So a lot of the people, when they hear that, you know, I'm a biologist or I study turtles, they right. mention me in the middle of the ocean caching turtles, and that rarely happens. I've gotten the chance to work with some friends that, kind of do more field st- stuff so I've gone through that so that's really neat so what's the favorite part about your job or I guess your PhD yeah so for me it's probably this part right so talking to the to the public about what I do and getting to share sort of my passion and my findings with people I also really really love going to conferences sometimes they're in really fun places um, like Hawaii or Peru. So that's really fun because you got to travel and hang out with other science nerds and talk yeah. about, you know, science, which is one of my favorite things to do. So it's <laughs> a lot of fun. Um, and the, the, the reality is, though, that I spent most of my time in the lab, either pipetting samples or looking at a microscope, which I enjoy as well, but I like interacting with people. That's good. How much time are you in the lab? It really varies a lot. So um, right now, because I'm trying to finish up, I, w- I would say, you know, at least every day of the week I'm here in the lab, at least for a few hours. But sometimes you have 12-hour days where you're not talking to anybody and just doing lab work. Okay. Um, but it depends on it depends on the time of year, I guess, and your specific project. Uh, right now, I'm also spending a lot of time writing because I'm trying to finish my dissertation and publish papers and stuff. So. That's the bulk of my time now. Makes sense. So you were just at ISTS, which is International Sea Turtle Symposium, um, which is kind of like a worldwide conglomeration of all the best minds in sea turtle research, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, and you won the Archie Carr Award. What what specifically was this for? Yeah, so this was for the best uh, student oral presentation in biology. So that's where I got to talk about kind of our findings and the fact that we are pretty sure we can identify sex in, in young loggerhead turtles by just taking a small, tiny drop of blood. So people were really excited about that. And that was kind of cool. I actually had to give this almost the same talk three times because there were two workshops at the beginning of the week and then the actual <laughs> talk. So I knew I, by the third time came around, I, I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you had a down pat at that point. <laughs> What advice would you give to someone who wants to be a marine biologist or what advice should they ignore? (laughs) I don't know if there's anything they should ignore. I think they should. uh, The first thing is, I think, volunteer. um, Mm -hmm. Make sure, you know, get involved. Make sure that it's something that you actually like. Um, Do your research, right? So a lot of people think that being a marine biologist is being out on a boat or swimming with dolphins or turtles and stuff like that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you you might get opportunities to do that. The reality is that's not what your day-to-day life is like, at least not for the majority of them, or at least the marine biologists that I know. Um, so make sure that you that you love science, that you love the question that you're that you're asking, and and you're so make, make and also envision what you want your life to be like, right? So for me, I know I really like teaching, 
And so I, I knew that a PhD was for me because I want to eventually have my own lab. And I also really love research. If you want to drive a Ferrari and have your own boat, this is probably not your, not your not <laughs> field for you. So it's just kind of try to realize what kind of life you want when you grow up and, and keep that in mind. I think. That's, that's good advice. That's really good advice. <laughs> I would say start to get involved as soon as you can. Uh, reach out to professors or to friends that you that you know are in the field. And most of the time we need help. So even if it's just as a volunteer or as undergraduate credits, I, I think the sooner you can get involved, the, the better for sure. What's next for you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I like I said, I, the end goal for me is to sort of to have my own lab. So okay. I want to do the postdoc route. So that basically means you find another lab that does stuff that you find interesting and you do research and try to publish papers for at least two to four years. Okay. Um, and it's kind of to prepare you to the, for the next step, right, for you to have your own lab and your own students. So I'm looking at a couple of places that I'm really interested in. Kind of my, the big question that I have to answer for myself is whether I want to stick with turtles or if I want to do something else. And I'm actually right now leaning towards doing something else for a little while, kind of learning new techniques, um, learning about new organisms and new systems, and then maybe eventually coming back to turtles. But I think my next step is going to be not turtley. Okay. Yeah. Just just because there's plenty of other fascinating things in the world or just you need a break from the turtles? No, I think mostly because there's plenty of fascinating things in the world, right? I, I, I feel like I know a lot about sea turtle sex determination, but I know nothing about, for example, fish sex determination. Mm. Fish do all sorts of weird stuff, right? So they also, a lot of them don't have sex chromosomes like fish, but they do either temperature or it's social interactions that determine their sex, or they can go back and forth, right? So how does that work? I think that's really super cool. Um and even with mammals, even though we do have sex chromosomes, the whole thing of the, the we also start with the gonad being a bipotential organ that can become an, an ovary or a testis. Mm -hmm. um, that exact mechanism of how it goes, it decides to go one way or the other, or how it's so plastic, it's still kind of a question mark. So I think that's really cool stuff that I'd like to explore. That's awesome. So same question, just different animal. Yeah, I think so. Although, so recently, I, well, not recently, last summer, I got the opportunity to take an embryology course at Woods Hole, at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, Wonderful. which is an incredible, magical place. So it was a, a like a two-month intensive course all about embryology, and we learned, you know, how you go basically from one cell stage to whatever, a, a hatchling or, or a mouse, whatever it is that you're studying. So we did a, tons of different organisms, and it really kind of blew my mind. So maybe something related to developmental biology as well. It doesn't really have to be sex determination. So as we wrap up here, one of my favorite questions is, what's your favorite sea creature? Ooh, so many. Favorite sea creature. Let me think. Give me a, I need a second on this one. That's totally fine. <laughs> So you mentioned uh, earlier you like soccer. What's your favorite soccer team? Oh, that one's easy. Barcelona, for sure. Barcelona. <laughs> Barcelona. And actually, the, I'm already nervous. They play Real Madrid tomorrow, so I'm, I'm already stressing out about that game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite sea creature? It might be, it might be an octopus. Okay. Octopus. Well, I really like sharks, too. 
Yeah, I mean, they're all very charismatic. Octopus, wait, octopuses. I went to Octogirls Talk and she was like, it's not octopi. Yeah, it's octopuses, right? I always go back and forth too. I don't know. Yes, octopi or octopuses. And yeah, they're awesome. I mean, they change colors, they're super smart. They're so cool. Those videos of them like camouflaging, you know, it's so it's so neat. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Boris. Yes, of course. My <laughs> pleasure. Thank you for having me. While Boris and I chatted quite a bit about his research, the point of research is to help create a better understanding of our oceans and its denizens so that they can be better protected. There are some simple things that you can do at home to help. Plastics are a huge problem in the oceans. If you can reduce or eliminate the use of single-use plastics, such as straws, the turtles in our oceans will be much better off. When you're out, as in a restaurant, refuse the straw. It's really simple. All you have to say is, I would like a glass of water. No straw, please. Thank you. It's a simple way to keep our oceans healthier. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to subscribe to our channel. It helps other ocean enthusiasts find us. And we'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.